And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is November the 30th, 334th day of the year. 31 days remaining to the year is over with. And holidays and observances. International ESG Day. That promotes eco-friendly choices. National Stay Home Because You're Well Day. Just take a day off. Screw work. International Systems Engineer Day. National Computer Security Day. National Moose Day. Uh, I'm talking about chocolate moose as opposed to moose in the woods. National Mason Jar Day. St. Andrew's Day. Blue Christmas, which... Honors uh, first responders. Um, Lung Cancer Awareness Month, National Children's Month, World Vegan Month, National Peanut Butter Lovers Month, November, National Epilepsy Awareness Month, National Native American Heritage Month, Manatee Awareness Month, National Pomegranate Month, National uh, Novel Writing Month, and National Adoption Month. Alrighty. 978 A.D. Franco-German War. Holy Roman Emperor Otto II lifts the siege of Paris and withdraws. Threw in a towel. Gave up. 1707 Queen Anne's War. Second siege of Pensacola comes to an end with the failure of the British Empire and their Creek Allies to capture Pensacola in Spanish Florida. 1718, Great Northern War. King Charles XII of Sweden dies during a siege of the fortress of Fredrikston in Norway. 1782, American Revolutionary War. Treaty of Paris. In Paris, representatives from the U.S. and Great Britain signed preliminary peace articles, later formalized as the 1783 Treaty of Paris. 1786, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany, under Pietro Leopoldo I, becomes the first modern state to abolish the death penalty. That's later commemorated as Cities for Life Day. 1803, the Balmas Expedition starts in Spain with the aim of vaccinating millions against smallpox in Spanish America and the Philippines. The uh, Balmas Expedition... Uh, was a Spanish health care mission. Lasted three years, 1803 to 1806. Led by Dr. Francisco Javier de Balmas, which uh, they vaccinated millions of inhabitants of Spanish America and Asia against smallpox. The vaccine was actually transported through children, orphan boys who sailed the expedition. The um, now Previously, there had been Scattered attempts in the colonies to use variolation, uh, an older, less effective method of inoculation against smallpox. You use smallpox material to inject it into people. And these efforts did little to mitigate the epidemics and sometimes increased the spread of the disease. Um, But in November 1794, the daughter of uh, King Charles IV of Spain... Infanta Maria Teresa died from smallpox. 
And he'd heard of the vaccine discovery. Colombia and Ecuador experienced a smallpox epidemic and called on the king for supplies. Now they actually used the cowpox virus. And it was November 30th, 1803, the expedition set off from Acaruna in northwest Spain, sailing on uh, Maria Pita, carrying 22 orphan boys, ages 3 to 10, to act as carriers of the smallpox virus. Now, the boys are necessary because the vaccine consisted of infecting patients with cowpox, which is a virus closely related to smallpox, but it produces a much milder disease that confers immunity to both. But only an active infection could be transferred to successive patients, so two boys were infected with cowpox at the beginning of the voyage, two more infected at a, uh, at a time as it progressed across the Atlantic and beyond. Medical staff and the caretakers of the boys consisted of bombers, a deputy surgeon, two assistants, two first aid practitioners, three nurses, and Isabel Zendal Gomez, the rectoress of Casa de Expositos, uh, an orphanage. The um, eighteen oh three. Also in New Orleans, Spanish representatives officially transferred Louisiana territory to the French First Republic. Eighteen fifty three, Crimean War, Battle of Sinop. Imperial Russian Navy under Pavel. Nakonomov destroys the Ottoman fleet under Ashman Pacha at Sinop, a seaport in northern Turkey. 1864, American Civil War. Confederate Army of Tennessee suffers heavy losses in an attack on the Union Army of the Ohio at the Battle of Franklin. 1864, in Franklin there is a uh, large manor house, and that's where they took a lot of the... uh, casualties and uh, the staff likes to tell ghost stories and I was there for a tour and uh, in Tennessee and and my grandmother's house was the same way which is in Tennessee storms could start and you couldn't hear it because of the way the houses were built and a storm had come up that we didn't know about and they were telling the story about hearing uh, footprint uh, footsteps on the porch when there was nobody there because that's where the bodies of uh, a dead uh, number of general officers died in the battle and they'd been laid out there and in fact you could still see the bloodstains and the um, the tour guide was talking about the uh, steps and he said uh, something to the effect of when you least expect it you hear strange things and it was a crack of lightning that lit up the room and the the crowd scattered. People ran for their cars. They didn't know what the hell was going on. It was interesting. 1972, the first ever international football match takes place at Hamilton Crescent in Glasgow between Scotland and England. 1916, Costa Rica signs the Buenos Aires Convention, a copyright treaty. 1936 in London, the Crystal Palace is destroyed by fire. Now, the Crystal Palace was a cast iron and plate glass structure as you built in Hyde Park, London, to house the Great Exhibition of 1851. Um, 
That exhibition took place from May 1st to October 15th, 1851, and more than 14,000 exhibitors from around the world gathered in its 990,000 square foot exhibition space to display examples of technology developed in the Industrial Revolution. The, uh, the building was three times the size of St. Paul's Cathedral. But the, uh, the fire of 1936 uh, destroyed the building. 1939, World War II, Soviet Red Army crosses the Finnish border in several places and bombs Helsinki and several other Finnish cities starting the Winter War. 1940, World War II, signing of the Sino-Japanese Treaty of 1940 between the Empire of Japan and the newly formed uh, Wang Jingwei, led the reorganized national government of the Republic of China. The treaty was considered so unfair to China it was compared to the 21 Demands. Now, for those who are not familiar with the 21 Demands, it was a set of demands made during the First World War by the Empire of Japan under Prime Minister Okuma Shinganobu to the government of the Republic of China on January 18, 1915. Secret demands would greatly extend Japanese control of China. Japan would keep the former German areas it had conquered started World War I in 1914. It would uh, have a strong hold in Manchuria and South Mongolia. And it would have an expanded role in the railway and how they operated. And the most extreme demands would give Japan a decisive voice in finance, policing, and government affairs. Uh, in fact, China would become a protectorate of Japan, which reduced uh, Western influence drastically. The, um, and the Treaty of 1940 was uh, as bad as the 21 demands. 1941, Holocaust, SS Einsatzgruppen, round up 11,000 Jews from the Riga ghetto and kill them in the Umbula massacre. 1942, World War II, Battle of Tessafaronga. Small squadron of Imperial Japanese Navy destroyers led by Rezo Tanaka defeats a U.S. Navy cruiser force under Carlton Wright. 1947, Civil War and Mandatory uh, Palestine begins, leading up to the creation of the State of Israel and the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. The, um, the Arabs were sure they were going to absolutely destroy and stomp into the dirt once and for all. Israel and Israel won. Ninety fifty three. Edward II, the Kabaka, or King of Buganda, is deposed and exiled to London by Sir Andrew Cohen, Governor of Uganda. Ninety fifty four, in Sulacaga, Alabama, the Hodges meteorite crashes through a roof and hits a woman taking an afternoon nap. This is the only documented case in the Western Hemisphere of a human being hit by a rock from space. That would be an interesting way to wake up. A meteorite coming through your roof. 1962. Eastern Airlines Flight 512 crashes at Idlewild Airport. Killed 25 people. 1966. Decolonization. Barbados becomes independent from the UK. 1967. Decolonization. South Yemen becomes independent from the United Kingdom. And... It's Yemen that is uh, home to the Houthis, 
who keep uh, trying to attack Israel and um, U.S. ships. 1967, the Pakistan People's Party is founded by Zufakar Ali Bhutto, who becomes the first chairman. Now, the Pakistan's People's Party is a center-left social democratic political party, second-largest party in the Senate. It was uh, founded in 1967 in Lahore when a number of prominent left-wing politicians joined hands against the military rule of President Muhammad Ayub Khan under the leadership of Zufakar Ali Bhutto, affiliated with the Socialist International. In other words, it is a socialist left-leaning party. 1967, pro-Soviet communist in the Philippines established the Layang Pankakase Ning Kabatan Filipino as its new youth wing. 1971. Iran seizes the greater and lesser Tums with, from the Emirate of Saraha and Ras al Kama. 1972, Vietnam War. White House Press Secretary Lon Ziegler tells the press there'll be no more public announcements concerning American troop withdrawal from Vietnam because troop levels are now down to 27,000. 1981, Cold War. In Geneva, representatives from the U.S. and Soviet Union began to negotiate intermediate-range nuclear weapon reductions in Europe. Those meetings were ending conclusively in Dece on December 17, 1981. 1995 saw the official end of Operation Desert Storm. The um, Desert Shield was the first uh, operation. Marked the military buildup from August of 1990 to January of 1991. And then it was Desert Storm, which began with the aerial bombing campaign against Iraq on January 17, 1991, and came to a close with the uh, liberation of Kuwait, February 28, 1991. The, um, even though the news media made it seem like we were the primary force in the Gulf War, it was a 42-country coalition led by the United States. And a lot of, in my humble opinion, what led to the war were um, opportunities that we actually granted to Saddam Hussein. And he took them and ran with them. 1995, President Bill Clinton visits Northern Ireland and speaks in favor of the Northern Ireland peace process to a huge rally at Belfast City Hall. He calls IRA fighters yesterday's men. 1999, ExxonMobil signed a $73.7 billion agreement to merge, creating ExxonMobil, the world's largest company. 1999, in Seattle, demonstrators against a World Trade Organization a meeting by our globalization protesters catch police unprepared and force the cancellation of opening ceremonies. 
Also in 1999, British Aerospace and Marconi Electronics Systems merged to form BAE Systems, Europe's largest defense contractor and the fourth largest aerospace firm in the world. Two thousand NASA launches STS ninety seven, the hundred and first space shuttle mission. Two thousand five, John Sintamu becomes the first black archbishop in the Church of England with his enthronement as the ninety seventh Archbishop of York. Twenty eighteen, a magnitude seven point one earthquake with its epicenter only twenty four kilometers from Anchorage, Alaska, caused significant property damage but didn't kill anybody. 2021, Barbados becomes a republic. 2021, 15-year-old gunman murders four students and injures seven people, including a teacher in a mass shooting at Oxford High School in Oxford Township in Michigan. Well, that ends our history segment. A few uh, news things I want to cover before we, uh, current news that is, before we move to um, today's segment. The, um, where is it at? Where is it at? Okie dokie. It seems we have a bit of a, um, we've sent 500,000 tons of relief supplies to Gaza to the same people that the Israelis are fighting. Hamas controls everything that comes into uh, Gaza. Now, the uh, I point out the son of the leader of Hamas is saying, don't negotiate with them. Threaten them. That's the only way to deal with them. The um, Iran is stunned at the response that they're getting when they attack our ships and planes. Um, the um, some pirates attacked what they thought was a cargo ship and it was USS Mason a destroyer and it it cleaned their clock well that's we've been talking in the last um the last week uh, what I've been calling the Kennedy murders now the assassination of President Kennedy I don't think anybody at this point in time would argue that it wasn't a conspiracy even some mafia hitmen said that uh, Jack Ruby killed Oswald on the orders of the mafia because when Oswald was caught at the theater he was supposed to be killed by the police 
He had been furnished a revolver, minus its firing pin. And when they, the police came storming in, he pulled the gun and he was going to shoot his way out. And the response, naturally, would have been uh, shooting Oswald. But instead, several very fast on their feet officers just tackled Oswald. And he got taken downtown. And then when they're going to transfer him, now this is the man who supposedly assassinated the president. And rather than transfer him in secret, it was announced when and where he'd be transferred to the county jail. And on national TV, he was paraded through the basement. And with a large number of police as witnesses, Jack Ruby walked into a supposedly secured basement, walked up to the uh, alleged assassin of the president, pulled a pistol, and shot him. And nobody made an effort to stop Oswald, uh, Ruby from doing that. Now, we've been talking about some of the other related deaths. Now, I talked about the fact that uh, Dorothy Kilgallen, nationally syndicated reporter and TV personality, was given a private interview with Ruby. And she went back to her home and told her editor she was going to blow the lid off the Kennedy assassination and gave a copy of all her notes on Kennedy and what Ruby said to a good friend of hers, Florence Pritchell, Pritchett Smith, also known as Mrs. Earl E.T. Smith. Now, Kilgallen was discovered in bed, dead. The uh, the death scene was clearly staged. It was a bed that she never slept in. She was dressed as she would never dress to go to sleep. And she was still wearing all her makeup. And she never went to bed with her makeup and eyelashes on. Now, the next day, Florence Pritchett Smith, her good friend, mysteriously died. It was cerebral hemorrhage. Um, hemorrhage. Hemorrhage. Official verdict for Ms. Smith. Natural causes. Now, there's a few interesting things to keep in mind about the death of Florence Pritchett Smith. She'd reportedly been entrusted with the article Gallon's confidential notes for her upcoming book on the Kennedy assassination. Died the day after Dorothy Kilgallen died. And the notes on the chapter of the book about the assassination of Kennedy vanished from both locations. Now, Florence Smith apparently suffered from leukemia. And little is known about her death except she died from a cerebral hemorrhage. Apparently, 
but not conclusively, caused by the leukemia. Now, it was known to several people she had been entrusted with a backup copy of Kilgallen's notes about her upcoming book. And just like Kilgallen's entire manuscript, the backup copy given to Smith vanished. And that would tend to me to point to the fact that foul play was involved. Now, if Kilgallen's death was accidental and Smith was natural, there's absolutely no adequate explanation for one very important point. Why did all of Kilgallen's work she'd been doing on the Kennedy cover-up completely vanish? This absolutely makes no sense whatsoever. Well, our next name on this hit parade was Betty McDonald. Also known as Nancy Jane Mooney. She was a dancer in Jack Ruby's nightclub and provided the alibi for a man accused of shooting a key witness to the Kennedy assassination. Interestingly enough, she died of strangulation. Officially called a suicide. She was actually in jail at the time. Found hanging in her jail cell at 4.45 in the morning, about two hours after her arrest for fighting with another woman. She used her own trousers, or someone did, around her neck. Now... Now, as far as it concerns the events surrounding the assassination, the information on the death of Betty McDonald actually more about the facts concerning a man named Warren Reynolds. Now, when Dallas police officer Tippett was shot and killed in the Elk Cliff section of Dallas shortly after the assassination of President Kennedy, a Dallas resident named Warren Reynolds was standing right in the path of the fleeing gunman leaving the Tippett crime scene. He actually chased the gunman for at least a block and saw his face quite clearly. Got a good look at the guy, but put it plainly, it wasn't what the authorities wanted to hear. They wanted to hear it was Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, Reynolds told police the man who shot Tippett was not Lee Harvey Oswald. And for his troubles... Reynolds was subsequently shot at, harassed, and almost had his 10-year-old daughter kidnapped. Finally, he changed his story and told the authorities what they wanted to hear. And all his problems stopped. Betty McDonald, also known as Nancy Mooney, was a stripper at Jack Ruby's nightclub, as I said. When police arrested a man accused of shooting Mr. Reynolds, Betty McDonald gave that man an alibi, saying she'd been with him at the time of the shooting. McDonald was arrested a short time after that on a different matter and was found dead in her jail cell. It was ruled immediately, before any investigation, that it was a suicide. And its linkage to the Kennedy assassination, of course, was peripheral. However, if in fact 
what Reynolds said in his initial statement was correct. It was not Oswald. And this man um, that Betty McDonald uh, vouched for tried to kill him. That calls into question everybody's motives. Now, there was a... Um, article about this in the Fair Play magazine. <coughs> it said, Warren Reynolds, who was employed in a car lot a block from the scene of the shooting of Officer Tippett, told the FBI on January 21st, 1964, he'd seen a man carrying a pistol fleeing from the scene of the killing. He also said he couldn't identify the man as Oswald, despite the fact he'd followed the man for a block and had seen him at close range. Two days after his FBI interview, now supposedly that was confidential information, but it was well known, he was shot through the head in the basement of his office. And since nothing was stolen, there was no obvious motive for the shooting. Now, Reynolds was hospitalized and recovered from his head wound. He'd been out of hospital for about three weeks when uh, late in February 1964 an attempt was made to kidnap his 10-year-old daughter. And then he and his family got telephone threats. And his fear about major changes in his everyday life, including a continuous uh, worry, the end of his nightly walks in the presence of a friend at the car lot after dark. And he owned a watchdog surrounded his house with floodlights that could be instantly turned on. Clearly, this was a man in fear of his life. But the story isn't over. Daryl Wayne Garner, the... The peanut gallery is tuning up. Um, was released on the strength of an alibi provided by his then-girlfriend, Nancy Jane Mooney. Ms. Mooney worked, worked as a stripper at Jack Ruby's uh, Carousel Club. And eight days after providing an alibi for Garner, she was arrested on the charge of disturbing the peace. She had allegedly been fighting with a roommate on a street corner. Although the roommate wasn't arrested. Two hours later, she's dead. Hung herself in her jail cell. As with many of the cases that we're going to talk about, we don't know what information Ms. McDonald may have provided. Because she didn't long enough to tell anybody. Now, had she lived, she might have rescinded her previous alibi testimony. And as a former employee of the Carousel Club, she could also affirm, and as did a number of others, that Tippett and Oswald both patronized the establishment. Now, although the case relates to the Kennedy assassination, its linkage is through uh, Warren Reynolds, which was a very clear case of the powers that be intimidating and harassing a key witness into involuntarily changing his testimony to fit the official version. As far as Betty McDonald, her death appears to have either been uh, a suicide, though why she would have committed suicide was uh, anybody's guess, or a murder to keep her from rescinding her testimony. Well, suicide or murder, her death doesn't appear to have been a professional hit or a link to the Kennedy assassination directly. But her story does reveal a clear case of witness intimidating regarding Warren Reynolds. 
Then we got Eddie Benavides. Out of a gunshot wound. This was, uh, is officially still an unsolved murder. He was the brother of an eyewitness. Um, well, in another odd series of events that are hard to explain, the, the brother of an eyewitness was murdered, shot in the back of the head in a bar in Dallas. And since the two looked a lot alike, it's been suggested that the murder was actually a case of mistaken identity. Now, Domingo Benavides witnessed the escape of the actual killer of Officer Tippett. Got a close look at the man, explained the police very clearly. He could simply not identify that man as Lee Harvey Oswald. Nobody initially identified the killer of Tippett as being Oswald. Now, Benavides was an intelligent, well-versed, and thoughtful young man who was confident in what he had, had and hadn't seen. A number of his interviews are online. You can still watch him. And he testified he got a real good look at the man that killed Tippett and was highly specific in his descriptions of how the killer differed from Oswald. He said, I remember the back of his head seemed like his hairline went square instead of tapering off. Went down, squared off, and made his head look flat in the back. Well, then things in his life took a bit of a turn. Repeatedly threatened by police and advised not to talk about what he saw to anybody. Now, according to author Monty Cook, Domingo Benavides said the killer did not resemble Oswald. And soon after that, he started getting death threats. His look-alike brother was killed in a bar fight. Suddenly, he reversed his testimony and agreed the killer was Oswald. And then all the threatening stopped. Well, whatever people may think of the matter, it's important to remember that exactly what uh, Domingo Benavides himself thought. He was convinced that his brother's murder was a case of mistaken identity and he was the intended victim. This was another very clear case of uh, witness intimidation. And the murder of his brother may or may not have actually been in related to the intimidation of Domingo Benavides, but certainly there was no other reason that anybody could come up with. Well, then we've got the death of Bill Chesser. Cause of death was a heart attack. Official verdict? Natural causes. Now, according to researchers... Mr. Chester was believed to have information about a Ruby Oswald link. And it seems highly plausible because it has been established in a number of other stories there were clearly links between Oswald and Ruby. Many reported uh, having seen the two together. Bill Chester clearly did have information about an Oswald link to Ruby. He was an auto mechanic who had worked on Jack Ruby's car. He had another mechanic at the garage where he worked. Uh, Robert Roy reported they'd seen Lee Harvey, Harvey Oswald driving Jack Ruby's car. Of course, that's questionable in the fact that um, there was a question about whether or not uh, Oswald could actually drive a car. But little is known about the death of Mr. Chester, and 
Nothing out of the ordinary that can be said about it at this point. But it's interesting that another person who could have testified died. Then we got Hank Killam. Died from blood loss from a severed throat. Three-inch cut through the jugular vein in the carotid artery. Um, the police immediately decided it was a suicide. Local medical authorities also initially concluded it was suicide, but then later on changed their decision to uh, an accident. Now, the police finding of suicide only makes sense if some extremely serious government people told the police it had to be suicide. Otherwise, no sane person would conclude a man intentionally jumped through a ground floor or plate glass window for the purpose of committing suicide. I mean, nobody commits suicide by jumping through a department store window at 4.30 in the morning. But as we shall see, um, there were some serious dark forces hot on Hank Killam's trail, and nobody knew that better than he did. Um, now, of course, suicide uh, verdict precludes a serious murder investigation. And quite apparently, the powers that be didn't want anybody investigating the murder of Hank Killam. Now, if you go to the Library of Congress investigation by the Congressional Research Service entitled Analysis of Reports and Data Bearing on Circumstances of the Death of 21 Individuals Connected with the Assassination of President Kennedy, you get an interesting... Uh, collection of data. According to uh, the information the Congressional Research Service came up with, he worked as a house painter in Dallas at the time of President Kennedy's assassination. And researcher Penn Jones maintained uh, that Killam was connected with both Lee Harvey Oswald and his murderer. First, uh, Killam's wife, Wanda Joyce Killam, worked for Jack Ruby as an exotic dancer in one of his clubs for two years prior to the assassination. And Killam was acquainted with and occasionally worked on painting assignments with a man named John Carter who resided in a rooming house located at 1026 North Beckley. That was the same rooming house where um, Lee Harvey Oswald lived. Now, according to the story, Killam had moved from town to town after the assassination and from state to state in an effort to avoid the continual questioning of federal agents. According to his wife, uh, Hank was hounded from job to job by these federal agents. And before his death in Florida, he told his brother Earl Killam, I'm a dead man, but uh, I've run as far as I'm going to run. Four o'clock in the morning, March 17, 1974, while sleeping in his mother's house, he was called to the phone. After that conversation, he dressed and left the house. Car door was heard to slam, according to his mother, although Killam didn't own a car. A few hours later, he was found dead on the street in Pensacola, Florida, with his throat cut. And since he was lying near a pile of broken glass, the newspaper said he either jumped or fell into a plate glass window. Well, the Pensacola police immediately ruled the death a suicide. Local coroner ruled the death accidental. Neither of these parties had known of the conflict in their rulings until early 1967 when 
Earl Killam asked that the body be uh, exhumed in an effort to determine the exact cause of death. Now, the reason stated by the Congressional Research Service for not being able to investigate the bizarre death of Killam was that his death has proved difficult to pursue from Washington due to the fact the Library of Congress does not permanently retain issues of the Pensacola Journal. Stop it. Now, that's got to be one of the flakiest reasons for not doing something I've ever seen. What a thorough and capable group of investigators our tax dollars fund at the Congressional Research Service. Um, this type of excuse is just flimsy. Now, anybody who could pick up the phone and call the Pensacola Journal could have gotten those copies. Um, one researcher, a private individual, who did, was informed that he was found dead near a blow complete grass window in Pensacola, Florida. Juggler vein had been severely cut and he bled to death before they could get him to the hospital. Police immediately called it a suicide. Uh, Now, what's interesting is he was found dead, his throat cut wide open, his body thrown through a department store window in Pensacola less than four months after the assassination. Now, his death aroused suspicions in county solicitor Carl Harper's mind, and 1967 began a uh, nationally publicized investigation. During the investigation, Harper discovered that Kimmel had fled Dallas, moved to Pensacola, then to Tampa, and back to Pensacola to escape agents that was said to be after him. And he found out what Killam had told his brother Earl, that he was a dead man, they're going to get him. Well, three key figures ripped apart the police theory of probable suicide in the death of um, Killam. According to the article, There were a number of valid reasons why the evidence is actually indicative of murder, not suicide. Uh, Harper, who apparently did more police work on the case than the police did, said, I was working the case as a claim against liability and didn't think we knew much about the mystery aspects of it at the time. You have to excuse me, the, uh, there are workmen outside who are driving my uh, little peanut gallery crazy. He said, the, the window of the store was broken. Blood went way back inside, four or five feet. And to uh, this particular researcher, Jim Harper, it, uh, man, he went through the window with tremendous force. If he'd slipped or staggered into the glass, the blood would have been right at the window. And if he'd fallen through it, he would have landed real close to the edge. Even county coroner, Dr. A.H. Northrup was shocked at the determination made by authorities. He said, I don't know how, until now, the police has listed his death as a probable suicide. Ten years as a medical examiner, I've never heard of a man trying to kill himself that way. Um, he also said Hank Killam would also have had to jump up and over a two-foot-high section of brick wall to even get into the plate glass window. And the mystery is deepened by the fact the body was discovered on the pavement 50 feet from the window. 
that is surely no way to commit suicide. Um, if he'd been cut anywhere else except on the jugular vein, he never would have bled to death. And there were no other marks or bruises in any way, shape, form, or form on his body. According to his brother Earl, he remembered the weekend his brother died. How Hank had seen a strange man wearing a collar of a priest several times near 316 West Romana Street, where Killam was staying with his mother Mary. No Catholic priest or Episcopal clergyman ever visited that area. Killam was frightened of the stranger who seemed to be shadowing him and told his own Baptist minister, be careful they don't put a knife in your back after being seen talking to me. That minister, the Reverend George Blue, also said Killam hinted in those uh, last days of his life that his special knowledge of that thing in Dallas would lead to his death. So Hank Killam was a man on the run. It was clear he knew an Oswald connection to Ruby because apparently he was a key part of the investigation. He wasn't just worried, but was in constant acute fear of his life. And those fears turned to be very well founded. According to his wife, Killam came home the night of the assassination white as a sheet. She said he stayed up all night watching television reports, and he began to keep a file of newspaper clippings on the Kennedy and Oswald killings. After the assassination, agents identified it as federal by his wife and his plotters by Killam began to hound her husband. Wanda, uh, Wanda said they uh, quizzed him about Ruby and, and Carter. When one um, crew stopped, another began. And finally, Killam ran. Uh, according to his wife, they'd browbeat him. They browbeat her into telling him where he had gone. Again, the agents and the plotters tracked him down in Tampa, where he's working as a used car salesman, chased him from one lot to another and into his home and finally to his death. Now, he was a big, confident man who didn't shy away from a problem. Over six feet tall, over 200 pounds, one tough customer by all accounts. Wife was absolutely certain he wouldn't have committed suicide because he just wasn't that type of guy. The way his wife put it was she didn't know who killed him, but... I know he wouldn't have jumped through a window. And Earl Killam also related to bizarre events in the middle of the night, which led to his murder. He said, I know my mother said he got a phone call at four in the morning the night he died and went out of the house and she heard a car door slam. And he said, I know he didn't have a car and less than 30 minutes later he's found dead. He said, it's possible that somebody picked him up, slid his juggler vein and threw him into the window to make it look like an accident. Then as everybody else who came in close contact with the case, Earl, kill him, ask an interesting question. Who would have thought of suicide? You don't commit suicide by jumping through a ground floor window. Well, this one is definitely linked to the Kennedy assassination, and there's no question in anybody's mind this was a murder. Uh, the victim's fears are very realistic, and he even correctly predicted his own murder. Now, we've talked about witness intimidation in a number of these stories, but in the death of Hank Killam, it was a blatant case of harassment and then murder due to an ex some extremely sensitive information the victim obviously possessed. Killam actually knew he was going to be killed as a result of the knowledge he possessed related to the Kennedy assassination. He didn't think he was... Uh, going to be killed, he knew he was, even aware there was nothing he could do to stop it, presumably due to the high nature of the 
people who wanted him dead. So in the end, he gave up running. And after that, he received a three-inch gash on his neck that severed his jugular vein and then apparently thrown through a plate glass window to make the death appear to be a suicide. Well, then we got Gary Underhill, former CIA agent, out of a gunshot wound behind the left ear. Official verdict? Suicide. Now, it's interesting to note that being shot behind the left ear is actually an execution. And he was right-handed, which would have made it awkward, not to mention totally pointless, for a right-handed person to commit suicide by shooting himself behind the left ear. Now, clearly, Underhill was running for his life at this point. And like Killam, his fears were well-founded. He actually predicted his own murder, and as an experienced CIA operative, he expressed concerns his life was in danger. There are concrete reasons to believe those fears were actually valid. Immediately after the assassination of President Kennedy, Underhill put two and two together. He knew exactly who did it. He even knew they knew he knew. Hours after the assassination, he fled Washington in fear of his life. When he got to New York, he was very specific on the reasons and warnings he gave a close friend. He knew he'd be killed, and he was. Like Killam, Gary Underhill was acutely aware, I guess certain would be the better word, that people were going to kill him as a direct result of knowledge he possessed about the Kennedy assassination. For those reasons alone, Underhill firmly believed he was a loose end that needed to be taken care of, and shortly he was. And there's a very good reason to believe Underhill knew exactly what he was talking about. Had a long career as a covert agent with the U.S. intelligence, which is well documented. Some of the official version backers have tried to paint the picture. There's no evidence Underhill was CIA, but uh, experienced researchers and a number of authors have thoroughly disproven those bogus attempts. He was indeed a veteran U.S. intelligence agent. Now, Gary Posner, who keeps popping up with his book Case Closed, says there's no source for the claim that Underhill was a former CIA agent, no corroboration he was ever, that he ever said that there was a CIA complicity in the assassination. Well, had Posner been a little less partisan, he had learned there's several sources for Underhill's wartime OSS career and his later CIA consulting status, including Underhill himself. As for his accusations about the CIA and the murder of Kennedy, he related them quite vividly to his friend uh, Charlene Fitzsimmons within 24 hours of the shooting. She then forwarded a letter to Jim Garrison relating the incident in detail. So the question here would be, who exactly was Underhill talking about when he used the word they, when he said, I know who they are, and they know I know? Well, Charlene Fitzsimmons, after he had left Washington, um, in fear of his life, um, recorded 
everything she was aware of. And keep in mind that that was mere hours after the assassination of Kennedy. Underhill immediately panicked, got in the car, and feeling he had to immediately get out of Washington, drove to the home of a friend that he knew he could trust in Long Island. He said, this country's too dangerous for me. I got to get on a boat. Oswald is a patsy. They set him up. It's too much. They've done something outrageous. They killed the president. I've been listening and hearing things. I couldn't believe that they get away with it, but they did. They've gone crazy. They're a bunch of drug runners and gun runners, the, a real violent group. I know who they are. That's the problem. They know I know. That's why I'm here. Well, Underhill made it clear to his friend he's running for his life. And um, Underhill believed there was a connection between executive action, Fidel Castro, and the death of Kennedy. Um, they tried it in Cuba. They couldn't get away with it. Rafted the Bay of Pigs, but Kennedy wouldn't let them do it. And that's how he got wind of this. He's really going to blow the whistle on them. So they killed him. Executive action, for those that are not aware, was a highly secret CIA military intelligence unit that was uh, created to assassinate Cuban leader Fidel Castro. It suggested President Kennedy was actually killed as a, by a turnaround operation from that unit. Now, there's no question this was murder. and There's no question it was a connection to Kennedy's assassination. Uh, Underhill's uh, fears were very realistic and even correctly predicted his own murder. Well, we come to the end of the day show, and we've only gotten through 16 of the deaths associated with this assassination. I got a list of uh, over 50, and when I pull out the rest of my notes that I'm, I'm working on a book about it, I've got a number of well over 100. Well, until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.